the summer, which is nearing an end, but the summer wasn't a time to just kind of shut down learning or stop learning. In fact, it's a great opportunity to learn. It's a great opportunity to look backwards and review some stuff that we've already learned. And it's a great opportunity to look forwards and, and take a look at accelerating our learning towards things that we are going to learn in the future. And in this series, we've taken a look at the book of Proverbs. And what we've said is that Proverbs calls us, it calls us to live the wise life. And to live the wise life is to live the Jesus life. What we need to understand is that Proverbs is not a self-help book. It's not filled with these tidbits of information that if we follow somehow, we now have smart advice to go by and we become a better person. No, it's actually a book that reveals to us that restorative nature of Jesus and how God intended us to live here as human beings. And so today we're going to continue in that series, and we're going to take a look at a topic that we may have heard about often when we're in church, but it's also one that we kind of just maybe have just uncertainty, or we're just kind of trying to figure it out together and what it all means. But before we jump into that topic, before we read from the Bible, I actually need some help from all of you, whether you're in Quakertown or in Sowerton, I need some help from you, because there has been a dispute, if you will, a little disagreement between my wife and I, for quite some time. So I figured we're going to put it to rest today, okay? So here's what's happening. She sent me a text uh, several months back, and this was during the school year. My wife is a school teacher, uh, and so what happens in the morning, we, you know, we all kind of chip into what we're doing, and so she's doing stuff to help get everyone out of the uh, house and on time. One of the things that I do is I make the lunches, and so I make the lunches, uh, for us, and then she sent me this text one um, morning, and here's how it goes. This will be the whole morning of text, ready? <clears throat> we have to leave in about 15 minutes. This is from my wife, all right? Um, and then I said, okay, lunches are done, okay? So I wanted her to know we're ready, lunches are done. Later on in the day, I get a random text from her. What do you do if you're addicted to seaweed? Now, that might sound like an odd text, but my wife really loves just different snacks and different foods, and once she likes something, she wants to eat it over and over and over again until then she doesn't want to eat it ever again, but, you know, that's what, so she sends me this text, I have no clue where it's from, and I'm like, my response was, go to rehab? (laughs) Or if it's healthy, buy the seaweed from grocery outlet, because there you have a ton for good price. And she writes back, you're ridiculous. And I say, what kind of question is this? I have no context. I think that the, que- the conversation's done. I think she's telling me that she has had seaweed over there at her school and, um, and that she's really enjoying it. She likes it, okay? About an hour later, she informs me of what kind of seaweed that she's addicted to. She writes, sea kelp. That's the text that comes across. Sea kelp. Okay. <laughs> So I think the entire day that she really wants this seaweed. So I go to the store, and I buy seaweed, dried seaweed, and I pack it in her lunch. And every day it comes back. So a week goes by where I take the seaweed out in the afternoon, and I put it back in in the morning because she's addicted to seaweed. So she tells me by the end of the week, she says, why do you keep putting this in my lunchbox? 
And I said, because you told me you're addicted to seaweed. And she starts laughing and she says, you are ridiculous. And I say, why? She goes, what do you do if you're addicted to seaweed? Seek help. Seek help. First of all, leave the dad jokes to the dad. <laughs> Second of all, when it comes to comedy, timing is everything. You don't send the punchline an hour later. <laughs> so my wife claims that I read this incorrectly and that I was wrong in how I interpreted it, and I claim that she was wrong in how she communicated it. So show of hands, who agrees with me? Yeah, the rest of you are wrong. When it comes to stuff like that, there are times when we read something, we could be reading the exact same thing, right? And that's a humorous kind of miscommunication, but we could be reading the exact same thing. I'm reading a text, reading the exact same thing, but we're reading something and interpreting it differently, or there's kind of differences in how we approach things. We're going to be talking about the fear of God, the fear of God today. And oftentimes, that is looked at and is read about, and it's looked at in different ways, and people are like, I'm not quite certain about how this means, and so I think it means this, or I think it means that. And what our desire today is, is to acknowledge that sometimes we approach it differently, but we need to find some clarity in what the fear of God means. And hopefully, by the end of today, we'll get some clarity in exactly what that is. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use one of the Bibles we have here at Calvary. If you don't own one, take it home. It's our gift to you. We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth, and we want you to have access to that truth. So whether you're in Quakertown or in Sourton, take that Bible home. It's our gift to you. We're going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What we just read is a preamble. You may have heard of that word before. You know, if you are someone who's a history buff and you, and you know about history, you'll know that the Constitution begins with a preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, and so on and so forth. That's a preamble. A preamble is different from an introduction. It could be part of an introduction, but it's a little bit different from an introduction. An introduction is more like long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then the horns blow and those credits rise up and it's Star Wars and all that. That's an introduction. It just kind of tells us what is happening. It gets us up to speed about what is happening. A preamble does something a little bit different. It kind of gives us the purpose of what you're about to read. It gives us the purpose of what's uh, uh, coming. It's almost like a, if you remember when you were in school and you would have to write papers, it's almost like a thesis statement, uh, kind of expanded a little bit. And in this preamble of Proverbs, we get basically almost the motto of the entire book, the theme of the entire book. There's all sorts of wise sayings in this book. There's all sorts of wise sayings in this book, and there's so different kinds of advice. 
But everything is founded on, everything of this whole wise life, everything is founded on, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the foundation of everything in Proverbs, this fear of the Lord. And what you need to understand is that Solomon, who wrote this, was part of the ancient Near East uh, culture, just as the Israel, the country that he was king over. And they would do something different in their introductions than what we would normally do today. So when you are up here on a Sunday, whether it's myself preaching or Charles or somebody else, what ends up happening normally is that you get some sort of seaweed story at the beginning. And you kind of just kind of warmed up so that I can kind of get to the point where I can make a point and we can kind of learn. That's not how it worked back then at the ancient Near East. They went right to the point. Right at the beginning, they're like, hey, this is why you're reading this. This is the whole point of everything I'm about to talk. Here you go, right up front. And so when you're reading these books of wisdom, in fact, there were, books of wisdom were very common in that culture, common in other countries around there in the ancient Near East. When you read these books of wisdom, that main point was given right at the beginning. It was even more important if what ended up happening was that that main point at the beginning formed a sandwich and actually was the main point at the end. And again, that's what actually happens in Proverbs. In Proverbs 31, the last chapter, the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, what do we get towards the end of that chapter, towards the end of the, the, the book of Proverbs? We get this in verse 30. Charm is deceptive. It's talking about a virtuous woman. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who what? A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This concept of fears the Lord is brought back in at the end. It's at the beginning, it's at the end, and it's sprinkled throughout the book. This is the foundational principle that Solomon wants to, us to understand when it comes to this life of wisdom. This life of wisdom. And so as we look at this, we're going to answer three questions today. We're going to answer three questions as we look at this today. We're going to ask ourselves, who is the Lord, what does it mean to fear him, and what's the alternative? Who is the Lord, what does it mean to fear him, and what's the alternative? Who is the Lord? Well, that word in the Bible for the Lord is Yahweh. It's, it's a Hebrew word. It's, it's referring to God. Who is the Lord? The Lord is God. And some of you might be sitting there and be like, okay, that's obvious. I was hoping for something new. Well, again, let me remind you where you are. You're in summer school. Summer school, we're going to review some things that maybe you've already heard. Maybe you've already been taught. But hopefully, as we review them, you learn something new. You learn something new. Because as we talk about the fear of the Lord, what we need to acknowledge is that sometimes that can create emotions of confusion. It can come up with emotions of just uncertainty, even upset emotions, dependent on how you approach this. And I think the way that we approach the fear of the Lord is also dependent on how we define who is God, who is the Lord. And what we need to understand, we've said this actually in this series before, is that we don't get to define God. The Bible defines God. God defines himself in his word. We don't get to define him. And yet we live out lives at time as if we have the right to define God. And so we might approach God as if he's Santa Claus. And as long as I'm on the nice list, he needs to get me everything that I ask of him. As long as I'm not on that naughty list, I have to get everything that I desire and that I ask of him. Or we might approach God as if he is an IRS uh, tax auditor that we fear. 
in a, in, in a scary way. Like we like, okay, I got to make sure that all my ducks are in the row or else I'm going to get it. Dependent on how we approach God, dependent on how we define God in our minds and in our hearts, actually impacts that whole concept of fearing the Lord. But we don't get to define who the Lord is. God defines who he is, and he defines it in his word. And I think at times in our culture, we tend to gravitate towards one side or the other. There are times when we gravitate towards that, um, uh, that, that afraid, that judgy kind of God, but there are often times when we kind of gravitate to our, God is this, this fluffy, loving, peaceful, in-the-clouds God. And we, we forget a little bit about just how awesome his nature is. We forget a little bit about who it is that we're approaching when we pray. We forget a little bit about who it is we're requesting or presenting our requests to. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet of Isaiah uh, documents this in chapter 40. He starts with verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What we are presented in this passage is a picture of the almighty God, the mighty God who calls out the stars and knows them by name. Who in comparison, we are nothing more than bugs. We are less than bugs. We're so small in comparison to this big and mighty God. And yet how often do we approach God like it's the opposite? How often do we approach God like he reports to me? How often do we report to God like, hey, God, here's the deal. I know that you're in charge, but let's be honest. You're more of like a figurehead. I'm really the one in charge. You might not think that consciously. You might not think it, but it's in the way we approach God, oftentimes we express that, don't we? We challenge him and we say, how can you let this happen, God? How can this happen and be okay? You're not doing things according to my plan. And we question God, but we're not alone in that. It's happened in the Bible too. In the Bible, there's a book uh, by the name of Job. Job was a man who was very successful. He was a wealthy man. And God allows for everything to be taken away from Job. God allows for his family to be taken away. God allows for his wealth to be taken away. Everything is taken away from Job, and Job questions God. And this is the response. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who 
is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself. If God ever says to me, brace yourself, whew, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick uh, darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shape. Shake the wicked out of it. And it goes on. It goes on. Just to be clear, God's not having a temper tantrum. God's expressing his nature to Job. In fact, this book is filled with God's love towards Job. If you read the book of, of Job, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of all of that, of those terrible things. But God is setting the record straight. He's saying, let me make one thing clear. I am God, not you. Who are you to question me? Were you there? Were you there when all of this took place? Were you there when I spoke everything into being? Who are you to question me? And so when it comes to who is this Lord that we are to fear, one side of it we need to understand and we need to grasp. He is a mighty Lord. And he does not report to us. He does not report to us. We are not in charge. He is. We are nothing more than little bugs in his presence. One question, though. Hold up. But I thought God was a loving God, right? What do you do with passages like 1 John? What do you do do with, like, verses from that? 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone... Who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. We are grasshoppers. How do you handle that tension? Because oftentimes we tend to gravitate towards one or the other, right? We kind of gravitate to the one that we feel most comfortable with. But it's actually in the tension where we understand the fullness of who the Lord is. It's in that tension that we understand the fullness of who the Lord is and where we find the power of fearing the Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, a fiction book, uh, called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was made into a movie as well. And what happens is, is that these four children go into this magical land of Narnia where there's, where there's dwarves and there's fawns and there's uh, talking animals. And the ruler over this land, the king over this land, is a lion named Aslan. Now, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and he wrote this as an allegory. He wrote this in a symbolic way. The character Aslan was meant to represent Jesus. And when the four children, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, and Susan, are revealed, what is revealed to them that Aslan is a lion, they have an interesting exchange with two beavers. The beavers can talk. Remember that, okay? This is normal in this land. This is what happened. Susan says this. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Then Mrs. Beaver goes, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There is so much depth in that children's fiction book when it comes to God. We want to make God into this safe, jolly, old, grandpa-ish figure that we can kind of run to. God isn't safe, but there's no safer place to be than with him. God is mighty, but he's good. God is terrifyingly mighty, but he is love. And that is the tension of who is the Lord. So who is the Lord? The Lord is God, and he is terrifyingly mighty, and he is good, and he is love. And while he is not safe, there's no safer place to be than with him. And this is so important to lean into as we examine what it means to fear him. So what does it mean to fear him? I've heard more than one sermon preached that talks about the fear of the Lord, and it says this. The fear of the Lord is simply reverence and awe. It's reverence and awe at God. And that's true, actually. I've preached that sermon before. But I think it's incomplete. I think it's incomplete. While it's true, I also think it reflects a little bit about our culture that is hyper-focused on positive feelings. We're so hyper-focused on positive feelings that we're afraid to actually go into some of the things that we might feel are negative even when they're not. And for us, for us, fear is a negative feeling, and so we want to try to avoid it, and so we kind of just want to focus on awe and reverence, and that's it. But I think if we just focus on awe and reverence and we're so hyper-focused on those positive feelings, we will actually skip a step that I think is very dangerous to skip. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses wants to see God. And God allows him to see him, but he only allows him to see him from the back because what God says is no one, no one, no human being can see me and live. This is how powerful his holiness is. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is brought into a vision in the heavenly realm where, where he sees God and he, and he remarks and he says, Woe is me! Woe is me! I have seen the Lord. Woe is me! Because he realizes he is a, a man with unclean lips. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, encounters Jesus. And when he recognizes Jesus, when he gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, he falls to the ground and says, get away from me. Get away from me. I'm a sinful person. The reactions to God's holiness, the reaction to who God is, fills us. Our sinful humanity fills us with terror because of who he is but we aren't left there. 
we're not left there. Because in each of those stories, what happens? God steps into the picture. God steps into the picture and allows Moses to see his back. God steps into the picture and a coal is brought to Isaiah to cleanse his lips. God steps into the picture in the form of Jesus. And Jesus reaches out and says, follow me. And what he does is he sends each one out. Now accomplish my mission. And each of those things and what happens in regards to the terrible might of God, his holiness, is that God steps in with grace. And when God steps in with grace, that changes everything. When God steps in with grace, that changes everything, including what it means to fear God. John Newton wrote a hymn called Amazing Grace. And in that hymn, he writes this line. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Some powerful, deep words. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace transforms the fear of the Lord from the terror of sin to the awe and wonder of the gospel. The gospel takes us from the state where the fear of the Lord would cause us to cower and run away from him to a state where the fear of the Lord causes us to marvel and run towards him. In essence, the fear of the Lord, when when transformed by the gospel of Jesus, is the most powerful expression of worship that we find in the book of Proverbs. We define worship here at Calvary as seeing God for who he is and responding appropriately. When we see God for who he is and we respond appropriately, we worship him. We worship him. The result is worshiping him. Our lives are meant to be filled with worship. And I don't just mean singing on a Sunday morning. I don't just mean getting together and singing different songs. That is an element of worship. That is a part of worship. But we are meant to worship with our lives. And so that means that when I leave church and I go to Wawa and I order a hoagie and I interact with the people in Wawa, that is meant to be done with a heart of worship. When I go to work and I interact with my coworkers, that is meant to be done with a heart of worship. When I'm taking a test in school, that is meant to be done with a heart of worship. When I'm driving on the turnpike, You know who you are. (laughs) That is meant to be done with a heart of worship. Everything that I do, everything that I am, needs to be done with a heart of worship that is anchored in this fear of the Lord that has been transformed by grace, that I marvel and awe at the one who I'm worshiping. And so my heart overflows with this awe and wonder and is expressed in a life of worship. Fear of the Lord leads to an attitude of worship because what happens when grace enters the picture is that the fear of the Lord reveals itself as being different from the fear of consequences. You can live life fearing consequences. And so you're trying to be good because you're afraid of the consequences that might happen if you're not good. That's different from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is when you see God for who he is, you see his awe, you see his might, you see his power, and you see his love, and you see his grace, and just how powerful it is, and you respond 
marvel in worship. That is different from the fear of consequences. The heart of the fear of consequences does good because they don't want anything bad to happen if they aren't good. The fear of the Lord does good because even when life includes bad things, the overwhelming goodness of God, his grace and love propels us to live lives of obedience and worship. So again, when it comes to the fear of the Lord, who is this Lord that we are to fear? We are to fear God. This mighty, powerful God and this loving, gracious God. And how are we to fear him? With hearts that are filled with awe and wonder, that are transformed by the gospel of Jesus, that live out lives of worship. If we don't fear God, surely there's an alternative. Surely we are given an option because we are given free will, right? So what is the alternative to fearing God. Well, what does it say in verse 7 again? It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is the alternative? You can despise wisdom. But that's deeper than just rejecting good advice. That's deeper than just rejecting wise sayings. What we've seen so far in Proverbs is that as we look at wisdom, what is revealed to us is that wisdom is another title of the Son of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reveals that wisdom is a title given to Jesus, that Jesus is the source of wisdom. He is actually wisdom. When we reject wisdom, we reject Jesus. We reject Jesus. But we've been doing that from day one in humanity, right? That's what sin is. And there's a danger in this. There's a danger in this. Fear of the Lord, again, I said, is sprinkled throughout Proverbs. In chapter 14, it says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Of death. When we reject wisdom and refuse to fear God, that leaves us in that state of being ensnared to death. When we fear the Lord, it allows us to move towards Jesus and it allows us to be, for Him to take us from death to life. It requires a humble heart. It requires acknowledging that we are not in charge. He is. But when we allowed pride to creep in and keep us away from that fear of the Lord, when we allow pride to cause us to say, no, I am in charge. I am my own God and we are just allowing ourselves to be further ensnared in death because the fear of the Lord, this wisdom brings about this fountain of life in Proverbs. It is Jesus who brings about life for us. What is the alternative to fearing the Lord? Death is the alternative to fearing the Lord. 
Death is the alternative to fear in the Lord. When we don't see God for who he is, and we don't see his grace, we will never approach Jesus. But when we approach Jesus, when we allow Jesus to transform our lives, when we allow the truth of the gospel to transform our lives, and we turn and repent and turn towards him, and everything changes. And we see God for who he is, and we respond with a fear that marvels and awes at this great and mighty God who chooses to love us so much. And the response is a life filled with worship, with worship in everything and anything that we do. So this week, examine your life. This is not a legalistic thing to do. I'm not trying to make you feel bad at all. But if your life has been transformed by the gospel, if your life has been transformed by Jesus, is it evident in your worship? Or is your worship about you? Is your worship more focused on the things that you are doing or on the things that you are a part of? Or is it focused on the one who you are worshiping? So whether it's through song or through wah-wah hoagies or driving on the turnpike, worship with hearts that are filled with the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for this, this reminder of how awesome and mighty you are. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder of what it means to fear you, to love you, and respond with awe. This heart of worship, of seeing who you are accurately and responding appropriately. Let it resonate in our hearts in everything that we do. Let our hearts be transformed each day into your image. Let our lives be our spiritual acts of worship. Do a mighty work in our hearts, in our church, and in our community. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.